Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 264. It's titled, What Happens If U.S. Interest Rates Go Negative? Last week, the yield on the 30-year government bond in Germany went negative for the first time ever. Now there are $15 trillion worth of bonds around the world, about 25% of the world's bond supply, that are priced so they earn a negative yield. That effectively means that you're paying, when you buy one of these bonds, you're paying somebody money to hold your money. There's a cost to actually investing. Back in episode 225, it was how to invest in bonds. And we talked about the relationship between interest rates and bonds as as interest rates go up, the value or the price of bonds fall. And when interest rates fall, the price of bonds go up. In order for a bond to have a negative interest rate for bonds that are actually outstanding already, let's say it's a originally a German bond, a 10-year bond that was priced to yield 1% and is paying interest of 1%. If rates fall enough, the price of that bond goes up so high that when you factor in the interest payments you're receiving plus the principal that you receive, let's say at the end of the bond, you, you get $100 of principal back, but you paid 120 to buy the bond, then you're going to effectively have a loss. But it's not just that. The German government is actually issuing new bonds that have a negative yield. In March 2019, there was an article in the Financial Times that mentioned Germany had sold 2.4 billion euros of 10-year government bonds at an average yield of negative 0.05%. They said that they received 2.6 times more bids for the debt than was accepted. The Financial Times clarified the negative yield means that investors who bought at Wednesday's auction and hold to maturity are guaranteed to sustain a loss. That was back in March. Now we're in August, and the yield on 10-year government paper is negative 0.6%. What drives negative interest rates? And is it possible that we could have negative interest rates in the U.S.? What would that mean for our retirement savings? What would that mean for the economy? We're going to take a look at that in today's episode. To better understand why interest rates are negative in many parts of the world, we need to understand savings, how savings work. The measure of savings in the U.S. is known as the personal savings rate, and it measures how much is saved as a percentage of disposable personal income. Disposable personal income is the income an individual has after paying taxes, and then what percentage of that after-tax income is saved? This rate started dropping after the 1991 to 1992 recession. In December 1992, the personal savings rate was 10.6%. By July 2005, it was 2.2%, the lowest ever. Right before the great financial crisis started, November 2007, the personal savings rate was 3.1%. Now, it's 8.1%. It's been creeping up. 
people are saving more. And we can look at one reason why they're saving more. But there's an aspect to savings that's really interesting. It was introduced by John Maynard Keynes, the economist, and it's called the paradox of thrift. And he pointed out that as more people, households, and businesses try to save, the less they spend. Think about that with a personal savings rate. It's your after-tax income. If you're saving more of it, then you're spending less. And $1 spent is someone else's income. Let's say we all joined the FIRE movement, the Financial Independence Retire Early movement, and instead of saving 8% of our disposable income, we decided to save 50%. There would be a lot less spending going on in aggregate across the entire economy because individuals, they're trying to save more. And as they save more, that means other people's income businesses are dropping because they're not selling as much. As more and more people try to save more, it becomes more difficult to save more because income is dropping. If your income is dropping, you're, you're having to spend a higher percentage of your income on things just to live day to day. Katerina Berman wrote an article on this for the St. Louis Fed. It was titled, Wait, Is Savings Good or Bad? The Paradox of Thrift. She wrote, let's assume I want a new computer. So I start saving an extra $100 each month that I would otherwise spend going out to eat. By choosing not to spend that $100, I deny the wait staff at my favorite restaurant some work hours and tips, i.e. some portion of their income. As a result, these workers also have to reduce their consumption because they are earning less. If society, as opposed to an individual, as in our example, follows this saving pattern, this snowball or Keynesian multiplier effect could ultimately lead to decreased consumer spending, and lower income for everyone. Lower incomes means the economy doesn't grow as fast and it becomes more difficult to save. So that's one aspect of saving, this paradox of thrift. Another aspect of savings comes out of what's known as the Austrian School of Economics. This was founded back in 1871 by Karl Menger. He outlined the principles of the Austrian School in his book that he published in 1871 called The Principles of Economics. There's an article by Peter J. Botka. In this article, he lists out the propositions of the Austrian school. Proposition number one, only individuals choose. Man, with his purposes and plans, is the beginning of all economic analysis. Only individuals make choices. Collective entities do not choose. The primary task of economic analysis is to make economic phenomena intelligible by basing it on individual purposes and plans. The secondary task of economic analysis is to trace out the unintended consequences of individual choices. This idea of the paradox of thrift is an example of an unintended consequences. If everyone decides to save more, the economy doesn't grow as well Incomes don't increase as much, and it becomes more difficult for everyone to save more because aggregate demand is pulled down. But it comes to individual choices. That's the idea behind Austrian economics. Karl Menger wrote one of those aspects of individual choices when he talks about time preference. He wrote, 
All experience teaches that a present enjoyment, or one in the near future, usually appears more important to men than one of equal intensity at a more remote time in the future. Here's how Ludwig von Mises, who was also an economic of the Austrian school, he died in 1973, he wrote, Satisfaction of a want in the near future is, other things being equal, preferred to that in the further distant future. Present goods are more valuable than future goods. This is important when it comes to savings, because we generally, over history, prefer getting something now versus waiting. It's hard to wait. So we prefer present goods as opposed to saving our money to buy something later. So we often have to be enticed to save by earning a rate of return on those savings. It's the cost of money, just that premium for giving up something today to purchase it later. Frank Shostak of the consulting firm Applied Austrian School Economics wrote, An individual who has just enough resources to keep him alive is unlikely to lend or invest his paltry means. The cost of lending or investing to him is likely to be very high. It might even cost him his life if he were to consider lending part of his means. Therefore, under this condition, he is unlikely to lend or invest, even if offered a very high interest rate. That individual in the example barely has enough to eat. He's not going to take some of his income and save it for later. The interest rate that he would have to earn in order to entice him not to spend today versus later would need to be very high. Shostak continues, once his wealth starts to expand, the cost of lending or investing starts to diminish. In other words, once you have more, then I have enough to eat. I have a house to live in. I have some money for entertainment. I'm satisfied with what I'm able to spend and live a good life. And if I have excess wealth above that, then I'm willing to save that. And I don't need as high of rate of return in order to be enticed to save the money, to delay some of my present spending into the future. Here's how Shostak puts it. From this we can infer all other things being equal, that anything that leads to an expansion in the real wealth of individuals gives rise to a decline in the interest rate, i.e., the lowering of the premium of present goods versus future goods. One of the theories behind negative interest rates is that there's a savings glut, that households, particularly wealthy households, they have enough. They have enough savings. They're able to save more, and there's more savings out there than there is uses for that savings. There's this concept called cost of capital for business. What they have to pay to access capital to invest in capital projects. And that cost of capital, the interest rate they pay on their debt, or the required rate of return on their stock, is a function of what the suppliers of the capital, investors, the savers, what's the required rate of return? If investors have a lower rate of return because they have excess savings, 
then business cost of capital is lower. Investors' expected return equals business cost of capital. So we have a lot of savings out there. And that cost of savings, because there is so much, this time preference, investors are willing to take a lower return. At the same time, businesses seem to want to borrow less to invest in capital projects that grow the economy. They seem willing to borrow to purchase their stock back in the marketplace, in the secondary market, but there needs to be a use of capital. And so if there's not as much demand for the capital, that also can push down required rates of return. Joaquim Fels, he's an economic advisor for PIMCO, wrote, Once upon a time, economic theory maintained that people always value today's consumption more than tomorrow's consumption and thus display positive time preference. People would therefore always demand compensation in the form of positive interest rate in order to forego current consumption and save for the future instead. People were viewed as impatient, and the more impatient people are, the higher the interest rate has to be to make them save. He continued, This made sense in a world where people usually died before they retired and struggled to satisfy basic needs. However, it can be argued that in affluent societies where people can expect to live ever longer and thus spend a significant amount of their lifetime incomes in retirement, more and more people demonstrate negative time preference, meaning they value future consumption during the retirement more than today's consumption. To transfer purchasing power to the future via saving today, they are thus willing to accept a negative interest rate and bring it about through their saving behavior. They value the future, saving for the future more than spending today. Isn't that the crux of the FIRE movement? The idea that I want to retire early, so I'm going to save a very high percent of my income? Not that there's anything wrong with that movement. We go back to unattended consequences, one of which could be negative interest rates in the U.S., Joaquim Wells writes, it is no longer absurd to think that the nominal yield on U.S. Treasury securities could go negative. U.S. Treasuries, which many investors view as the ultimate safe haven apart from gold, may be no exception to the negative yield phenomena. We understand then why interest rates could be negative due to this savings glut, but why are households and businesses willing to invest at negative rates? actually buy those bonds that are guaranteed to lose money if held to maturity. Before we answer that, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million 10 million or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. 
It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. There are three reasons why investors would be willing to buy a negative yielding bond. First is they believe interest rates will fall further, so they'll benefit from the capital appreciation. As interest rates fall, the value of bonds goes up. And if interest rates are negative when you buy it and they become more negative, then the value of the bond went up even more and you can sell it and have a capital appreciation. But you're speculating in interest rates. We've talked about that. I own bonds for the income. I would never buy a negative yielding bond because it wouldn't give me positive income. But some investors will because they believe rates will fall further. So they'll buy a negative yielding bond in anticipation that rates could fall even more and they will benefit from the jump in prices. The second reason is a concept called rolling down the yield curve. Even if there isn't any change in interest rates, if they stay the same, if you bought a 10-year negative yielding bond and you held it for one year, so then a year later, it's a nine-year bond. And if the nine-year bond has a little lower yield than the 10-year bond, because oftentimes you have an upward sloping yield curve where shorter-term rates are lower, in this case, more negative than longer-term rates, just the passage of time, a 10-year bond becoming a nine-year bond becoming a eight-year bond, that roll down of the yield curve gives you a positive return. For example, since 2016, a time when the seven to 10-year Japanese government bonds have had a negative yield, so since February 2016, the return on those bonds has been 0.46%. This was pointed out by Randall Forsyth in his Up and Down Wall Street column this past week in Barron's. So you got a half percent annualized return holding negative yielding bonds because through time, there was a little bit of price appreciation as the 10-year bonds became nine-year bonds, became eight-year bonds, became seven-year bonds. It's kind of an odd concept, but it shows that even if interest rates don't change at all and the yield curve stays as it is, extremely negative like it is for Germany, from zero to 30-year government bonds, it is possible to earn a little bit of return. A third reason to own a negative yielding bond is just as a safe place to store money. That yes, perhaps an investor would pay to have a safe place to put their money, even if it would cost them something. Perhaps it's the optionality, just waiting for something more attractive to come along. Sometimes it's entities or, or businesses that have to keep a certain amount of their capital stored in a safe place. And it's easier for them. They can't really hold it in cash, currency, and bills. They're willing to keep it in 
government bonds, even if it costs them a little bit of money. Now, we can't ignore what central banks are doing to encourage these negative interest rates. The fact is, the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan, they are charging their commercial banks to store money at them, charge them a tax on their excess reserves in the form of a negative deposit rate. Their policy rates essentially are negative, and that flows through other interest rates in Europe and Japan. And so there's an aspect is rates are low to negative, partly because of what central banks are doing. They certainly influence it. Now, central banks are saying we're trying to set our policy rate at a level that encourages businesses to expand, to hire more workers, to borrow money and to invest in capital projects, that that's the normal, the neutral rate of interest. If it's higher than that, then the economy, in their opinion, would fall into recession. And so they're always trying to figure out, well, what is this unobservable neutral rate of interest? And it's very, very low around the world. In the U.S., it's higher. Right now, it's 2 to 2.25%. But what if the U.S. interest rates went negative? Why is it Germany has a negative yield or interest rate on their 30-year bond and the U.S. does not? Why is it that the 10-year Treasury bond in the U.S. yields 1.6, 1.7% right now, whereas it's negative 0.6% in Germany? It could happen here. That's what Joachim Fels is suggesting. Partly, he thinks it's his time preference thing. But certainly, if savers want to save more and more, that puts downward pressure on interest rates. And as interest rates fall, two things could happen. It could push up asset prices. It could cause real estate prices to go higher, stock prices to go higher, and bond prices to go higher. Because as investors required rate of returns fall, what they're willing to take in terms of return as that falls, the value of those assets go up because as you pay more for something, an asset, your return will be lower. That's just how the math works. Investors, the emotion, what they're willing to pay for assets goes up because they're willing to accept a lower return. That could be one impact of negative interest rates. Conversely, these rates could go negative in the U.S. as a recession occurs. It could lead to a slump in corporate profits, which often happens during an economic contraction. People aren't spending as much. They're trying to save more and spend less. So businesses have less income, less profits. They cut their dividends. Earnings fall. And that could result in a fall in asset prices, a sell-off, a bear market. We don't know. We're not there yet. So here's what I'm watching for. And I discussed this on Money for the Rest of Us Plus, our most recent monthly investment conditions report. We look at this monthly. Look at what conditions are to see how and where we should invest. One of the things we're seeing in the global economy right now 
is there's a manufacturing slowdown. That's what's showing up in these monthly business surveys called PMI, Purchasing Manager Indices. The manufacturing globally, it's in contraction territory. But the services, the non-manufacturing sector, is still resilient. In fact, the separation between the services PMI and the manufacturing PMI, it's at its widest level in five years. And it's unusual for them to stay that divided. This is from data from Capital Economics. So either manufacturing will pick up, suggesting the global economic slowdown is improving and that a recession will be avoided, or services could deteriorate more. And so that gap is narrowed and services fall into stagnation or contraction level. And then the risk of recession definitely increases. I'm looking at that. Second, Although we're having a global economic slowdown right now, we've not seen a negative impact yet on corporate earnings. When we look at the earnings expectations, the percent of analysts that are increasing their earnings expectations for companies looking forward, the percent of companies that are beating those expectations, we've not seen a deterioration on that front yet. I am certainly looking at that. And if I see a deterioration in earnings, that potentially calls for reducing risk. The third thing that I'm watching is what are known as credit spreads. What's the incremental yield that investors are demanding to own non-investment grade bonds or high yield bonds? Bonds issued by companies that have a higher risk of default. Right now, these bonds are priced assuming there's no recession on the horizon, that the risk of that is very, very low. If recession risk increases, then those spreads should widen out, even as the yields in government bonds falls or goes negative. And we're not seeing that right now, at least not yet, which is another indication that perhaps a recession is not imminent. I believe for interest rates to go negative in the U.S., you would need the U.S. economy to slow much more than it is. To where the Federal Reserve feels compelled to cut interest rates again, initiate quantitative easing again, where they're buying bonds in the marketplace. And that would put downward pressure on interest rates, potentially leading to negative yields. So that's what I'm looking at. Now, again, I own bonds for income. I'm not speculating on interest rates. I'm just observing. And if I see a recession, risk is increasing, then I will reduce risk in my investment portfolio. What can we do, though, if we actually do get negative interest rates in the U.S.? And maybe we get an initial pop from rising asset prices. But if we have to continue to save for retirement, perhaps we're young and we have decades until retirement, and rates are low to negative. And the potential return on stocks is low. Well, our only choice is certainly to save more, but we can also become less capital intensive ourselves. If businesses are investing less capital in projects because of technology, the ability 
for companies to produce things are so much more efficient. We in our lives need to be less capital intensive ourselves. We need to be able to live on less, to be able to maximize our well-being with less consumption, to simplify our lives so we just need less to live on and still live a good life, take advantage of the technology that's out there and the fact that many of these goods and services, if we buy well, will last for many, many years. So if we have kind of an asset light approach to life where we just need less, then we can overcome the fact that we're going to earn less on our savings in the world that we are in. We have to be adaptable from that front. We're going to earn less on our investments because there's so much savings, because the world's so much more efficient in terms of producing things, then we can live in a way that we just need less, have fewer things, an asset light approach to living. That's episode 264. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, sign up for my free insider's guide, and I'll email those show notes, those links to you each week, along with an essay I do on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week, sometimes related to that week's episode, sometimes some other topic, I just send it to that email list. So please sign up at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.